talk to you today about mothers, and particularly I want to talk to you about a mother that we find in the Old Testament named Jochebed, uh, Moses' mother. And the message that I have on my heart for you today, and this is especially to you mothers and grandmothers, is that mothers have a tremendous impact on their children. Sometimes we don't realize the depth of the of the um, power and influence that we have on our children. And those of you who um, are seeking to re live a righteous life will see the blessing on your children for many generations. That's what we're going to be talking about. But let's turn to the story of Jochebed in the Old Testament. And we find it in uh, the first, starts in the first chapter of Exodus. And then the uh, verses that we'll be dealing with are in the second chapter. The nation of Israel, the people of Israel, um, went from the promised land, what's, what's today Israel, down into Egypt at the time of Joseph, Jacob's son. And he became second in command over the vast kingdom of Egypt. And when Joseph was alive, Things went very well for the 12 sons of Jacob. Um, you know, the, the other sons of Jacob ended up going down to Egypt. And while they were there, um, and while Joseph was alive, and the memory of Joseph was alive, they did very well. They lived in Goshen, which was in the, um, the delta region of Egypt, the most fertile part of Egypt. And they did very well. But as Joseph's memory began to, and the memory of Joseph began to fade, there came into power those who didn't know about Joseph and didn't know the history of, of Israel. And they were there for a total of 430 years. 
And they grew from them from the time when they went down into Egypt. There were 70 people. By the time they came out, uh, most estimates are around 2 to 3 million people. So a huge number of people coming out of Egypt uh, for what we call the Exodus. And so we turn to the um, birth of Moses in Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. And you can read along with me. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So he, you know, the, the Pharaoh is, is worried about a rebellion and, and the Israelites joining with their enemies. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So here's the, you know, here's the stage. The Israelites have gone from being favored to now being slaves and worked ruthlessly in the fields and in building cities and, and harsh, very harsh conditions for them. But to make it worse, <coughs> Pharaoh issued a decree, beginning in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stone, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. <clears throat> then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So God blesses these midwives. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. And so Pharaoh, because it wasn't working with the midwives, Pharaoh expands this, this curse, really, uh, for the nation of Israel. He gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. So we can see then the bitterness of the Israelites' lives. It was a very difficult time. They were crying out to God for deliverance. And into the midst then of this, um, this time of difficulty in the lives of these Hebrew, these uh, Israelites, Moses is born. So we turn to chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 of Exodus. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now we find in Exodus 6.16, 6, uh, let me read this. These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records. Amram, 
married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. So we see from this passage that Moses' father was named Amram, and he married his aunt, his father's sister. Now it could have been, uh, depending on how you uh, translate the Hebrew, it could have been his cousin. But she was also a Levite. So they're both uh, the Levites. Now remember, the Levites were the priestly ca class in Israel. They're the ones who had the duty of looking after the temple. But they had no inheritance in the sense of a, a specific plot of land that was given to them, as the other 11 tribes did. But they were wholly consecrated to the service of the Lord. And they got their living from the tithes of the, uh, the other 11 tribes. And so Jochebed then, the Levite mother, comes up with a plan. Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, we don't know exactly why Jochebed devised this plan, whether she knew the habits of the daughter of the Pharaoh, who, by the way, we never get her name, but maybe she knew the habits of this woman and she was targeting and trying to get Moses into the, uh, into the, uh, the home of Pharaoh. We don't, uh, probably not. I think personally that she just put, uh, God told her to put Moses in a papyrus uh, basket, cover it with pitch so it would float and put it in the reeds in the Nile. She didn't put it out in, you know, where the Nile would flow, um, but in the reeds, on the eddies, in the side of the, of the Nile. But in whatever case, uh, Jochebed had great faith. We'll talk more about that later. Beginning verse 5, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she, replied, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I'll pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older... She took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, this whole story turns on this phrase, she felt sorry for him. Because at that point, uh, this story turns, it, the whole thing turns around. Prior to that time, um, <clears throat> you don't know what's going to happen to Moses. And he could, have, uh, he could have drowned there. Somebody else could have found him and killed him. Remember, the Pharaoh had given orders that anybody that found a boy, a baby, uh, was to drown them in the Nile. So, um, but the Pharaoh's daughter sees him, and this 
and then it says she felt sorry for them. And the root means it's an emotional response that may result in action to remove the object from impending difficulty. So, so she has compassion. Something stirs deep within, within uh, Pharaoh's daughter's heart. And the whole story turns. If Pharaoh's daughter had not been moved with compassion and a desire to protect the baby in the basket, Moses would have been thrown into the Nile just like other Hebrew boys. So Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moses. And Moses is turned in one little incident from death to life, from danger to privilege. He's delivered from condemnation to grinding slavery to, <clears throat> to a life of privilege in the Egyptian court with obscurity to the, from obscurity to the limelight. Moses was brought up with all the finery of Egypt, with all the best education, opportunities. And probably Pharaoh's daughter had planned to make him the Pharaoh at some point. He was one of the heirs of the throne of Egypt. But not only does Pharaoh's daughter take Moses for her own, but she pays Moses' mother to nurse her own son. <laughs> That's, you know, what a twist. <laughs> Who should have been thrown into the Nile instead of living. And it doesn't say how old Moses was when he was taken to Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says it's very likely that it was the usual time for weaning, which is three to four years, or maybe three to six years. But what we see is that Jochebed had a tremendous influence on Moses during the time that she had them, even though she had, them, had him for a very short time. And so I want to talk about Jochebed's love and her faith in her godliness. And there's six evidences in here, I see, of the godliness of Jochebed. The first is that she was a Levite, married to a Levite. So that is, she was from the priestly class. Uh, in fact, she was in the lineage of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac Jacob. Jacob had Levi, who had Kohath, who had Amram, and then Moses. So Moses was actually not very far removed from the family of Abraham. So the Levites, in order to work in the temple, they were, you know, that was their whole life, was working in the temple and serving God. Second evidence I see is that it says that she saw that Moses was no ordinary child. Now, we don't know exactly what, what was meant by that um, as it was recorded. But I believe that it meant that she could sense the presence of God on this little boy's life. And something stirred within her. God spoke to her deep from, deep from the inside that this child is special. Third thing is that she didn't obey Pharaoh's orders. She could have just said, okay, I've got to obey Pharaoh here. But she realized that to obey God was more important than obeying Pharaoh. In fact, in Hebrews eleven twenty three, it says this. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they had faith to obey God 
rather than the king at this point. Now, most of the time, we're supposed to obey the, the rulers and the authorities over us. But when it goes against what God wants, then we're to obey God. And that's what she did. The fourth evidence here is that she devised a plan. And Jochebed trusted that God had spoken to her, and she trusted that she, if she put Moses in the Nile, in this basket, papyrus basket, that God would keep Moses. So she had faith in God, that no matter what happens, that God had his hand on this little baby. Fifth evidence is that she gave up Moses to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, you mothers and grandmothers out there, probably the hardest thing that you can ever face in your life is to give up your child to somebody else to raise, willingly. And how Jochebed must have treasured the years that she had, you know, maybe four, three, four, five, six years that she had with Moses, and she must have prayed for him and and spoken to him and sung to him and and uh, just loved him and and told him about the Hebrews and told him about the Israelites and told him about the plan and so on because we find out later that Moses uh, remembers he's 40 years old and he remembers the the Hebrews and he remembers where he came from and, and there must have been things that that Jochebed instilled into Moses at an early age that he carried with him into adulthood. Um, it Probably the hardest thing, as I said, for a mother to do is to turn her baby over to somebody else. I remember when I was, uh, it was about 15 years ago, and a family that we knew uh, very well, we've we're, uh, been really close to this young family, and they adopted a little baby girl. And they did what, uh, I hadn't heard of it before, maybe you've never heard of it before either, an entrustment ceremony where they actually take, uh, take the, the, the baby, <coughs> the birth mother hands over that little baby to the adopting family. And so we did, we went up to, it was up in uh, Phoenix and we drove up and did this entrustment ceremony. And as we did that, and as that birth mother handed that little baby girl over to this adopting family, um, there wasn't a dry eye in anybody. I mean, we were all just weeping because of the emotion of this, of this moment. And I think that that's what Jochebed, you know, probably when Jochebed uh, finally handed this baby over to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, it must have been an extremely emotional time for Jochebed. How difficult it is, but she had faith that God would bless her and that God would bless little Moses. The sixth evidence that we find of <coughs> Jochebed is that she raised three children who were part of leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Jochebed had, first of all, um, Miriam, because Miriam was maybe nine or ten years old at the time of this story. And then Aaron was the second in line. And Aaron says it was three years older than Moses. So there's Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. 
and all of them turned out to be godly young um, two two men and two and one uh, one daughter, and they all turned out to lead godly lives. Now none of them were perfect. Moses, uh, God restricted Moses from going and blocked him from going into the promised land because he disobeyed him at the waters of Meribah. Aaron and Miriam led a rebellion against Moses, and Aaron was complicit in constructing the golden calf. But all three of them were godly. Aaron became the first high priest. Miriam led the song when they passed through the Red Sea. After they had gotten through the Red Sea, uh, she led the whole congregation in singing and dancing. So what do we learn from this story? As I mentioned at the beginning, the main thing I think that we get from this story is that mothers pass along values, attitudes, and acceptance and self-worth to their children. And we can never underestimate the impact that you are having on your children and your grandchildren. You know, all of us uh, have times when we really wonder how much impact, positive impact we're having our children and grandchildren. But Jochebed only had these few short years with Moses. And yet, it influenced Moses' life and, and changed the whole trajectory of his life. Just those short years that she had with him. So never underestimate the impact that you're having. Mothers don't have any idea how much influence they have on their children through their love and through their prayers. Proverbs 31.10, a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Verse 28, her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she has earned and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. As I look back on my own mother, uh, Virginia Turner was her maiden name, uh, Virginia Martin. I see the tremendous impact that she had and influence that she had on my life. She gave me a high regard for human life and a high regard for scripture, and a high regard for Jesus. Now, my mother uh, didn't become a, a personally accept Christ until she was later, in, in her later life. Um, we were the ones, through our ministry, she came to Christ, personal relationship. But she came from a godly family. Her grandfather and great uncle uh, were both itinerant pastors and preachers. And so even though she didn't have that personal relationship with Christ, um, she gave me a high regard for Jesus, a high regard for Scripture, a high regard for ministry. She spoke well of Jesus. She spoke well of Scripture and would quote Scripture. And she taught me that love is the answer to life, that the most important thing we can do is to love others. It took a revelation from God to me that God is love and that Jesus is God. So it took a, a further word, but, but my, my mother laid the foundation 
that love is the most important thing in life, to lo really love other people. She gave me a belief that every person is created in the image of God and is valuable. And she really listened to me. We had long talks about philosophy and life and so on. And my mother was, uh, you know, one of my best friends all the way through my life. She died some 20 years ago now. The last thing she did, she really accepted my wife and included her as part of the family. And, and my wife and my mother uh, became best friends and had great long talks and uh, and. Caroline always felt like she was part of the family right from the beginning. And that was very important to me. But I also want to talk about what Caroline has passed on to our children. We have two children, Amy and Matthew. And she gave them both a foundation of faith raised in the church. They went to Christian schools. She taught them diligent, diligence and, uh, and not procrastinating. My wife gets things done. She's a, she's a mover and a shaker and gets things done. She's, a, she's an organizer. She taught them gifts of leadership. Both of them are leaders. She gave them a value for spiritual growth and a value for family. In fact, that's one of the main things I would say about my wife is that family is really important to her. and She invests in the family. She's always investing in the family. Even now, in our older age, uh, family comes first for her second to the relationship with God. And the development of the family is very important to her. But most of all, she had a deep, unshakable love for our children. And they know that. And they know that they are loved. And they know that they are accept, accepted. And they know that, the, that she's going to be with them no matter what. So in conclusion then, your godly lifestyle has a great influence on your children and grandchildren. When you are righteous before the Lord, he blesses your progeny for countless generations. Listen to some of these scriptures. Proverbs 14, 26. He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress. Listen to this. And his children, for his children, it will be a refuge. Proverbs 17.6, children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. Proverbs 27, 20, verse 7, the righteous man leads a blameless life. Blessed are his children after him. I have just, this has meant so much to me, this particular verse, just thinking about my righteousness, my desire to walk with Christ has ensures that my children are going to be blessed after me. Psalm 37, verse 25 and 26. I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Again, as we are righteous, God blesses our children. Psalm 103, verse 17. But from everlasting to everlasting... The Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Your life has a profound impact as you walk faithfully before God. God then looks to your children and says, I'm going to bless those children. So I want you to be encouraged that you can trust God for your children and your grandchildren. As I mentioned earlier, 
It doesn't always look like things are going the way we want them to. And sometimes we go through some pretty tough waters with our children, with our grandchildren, with those whom we love so much. But I want to encourage you that you have a noble calling. Dorothy Patterson, in an article entitled The High Calling of Wife and Mother in Biblical Perspective, she says this, Few women realize what great service they are doing for mankind and for the kingdom of Christ when they provide a shelter for the family and good mothering, the foundation on which all else is built. A mother builds something far more magnificent than any cathedral, the dwelling place for an immortal soul. You are, you are creating a cathedral in your work of just simply being a mother, a dwelling place for their immortal soul. Tony Campolo said one time about his wife Peggy, and she was a full-time full, full time at home with her children, and people would come up to her and say, okay, so what do you do? And she would say, I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of creation. <laughs> and then she'd ask the other person, what do you do? <laughs> It's Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. Be encouraged. It took Moses. Moses was 40 years old before God got a hold of him. <clears throat> and he turned back to help his Hebrews. <clears throat> Be encouraged that even when you're old, those children have that foundation of faith in their lives. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is a God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So I want to encourage you this morning to love him and keep his commands and your children, your grandchildren, and your progeny for a thousand generations will be blessed because of your obedience to Christ. Thank you.